0: Series is why do I do what I don't want to do? Now, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we are called to live holy lives. We're called to be righteous. We're called to be set apart. We're called to do the things that Jesus teaches us in Scripture. And the only way that that is possible is by being fully dependent upon the holy spirit but even having said that even if we have a desire to do what is right even if we are fully dependent upon the holy spirit we can all still look back over our lives and see that we have done many things that we did not want to do we've done many wrong things many harmful things many things that that we know were not good for us but we still did them Anyway, and the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans 7. We're going to read a couple of verses. We read them last week. We're going to read them again. This is our springboard for this series Romans 7, verses 15 to 17. Come up on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul teaching, talking. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament, he planted loads of churches. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For I want for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. I don't know about you, but I'm hands up there with the Apostle Paul. That's me, okay, along with the Apostle Paul. I'm guessing along with all of us. And in my life as A man, as a human being, and as a pastor of a church for the last 13 years, there's two particular things that I have noticed. Number one, sin subtly creeps in. It's always slowly, slowly. It's always step by step. It's always little by little. And secondly, while we love quick fixes, we love to fix something and move on. Do some DIY. Fix something and move on. To pursue a life of holiness, that is a lifelong pursuit full of thousands of right and holy decisions along the way. Now, listen, I love uh, swimming. I love swimming in the sea. Okay, I don't know about you, but I just love it. I love being out in the ocean and swimming. And when I was at university, uh, I used to love swimming in the ocean and taking friends and going from Norfolk from Norwich, where I was at university, out to the North Norfolk coast, and to swim, to swim out in the ocean. And in the summer term, very occasionally we used to gather all together a whole bunch of students, jump into cars and drive out to Holcombe, a place called Holcomb on the North Norfolk coast. Beautiful flat beaches, beautiful sand dunes, and completely unspoiled. Now, we had all set up base on this uh, a big, big beach, big unspoiled beach. We put down our towels, we put down our bags, we put down our, our parasols, and a few of us were there, and we went out for a swim. Now, I'd been out for about half an hour, and gradually one or two of my friends had gone back in, and I suddenly realized that I was the only one left out swimming in the sea. And and as I looked up and thought about coming into the shore, I realized that I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't see the whole bunch of us that, that had been together, all our bags, all our kind of paraphernalia that you have when you're at the beach. I was like, where is everybody? I, I couldn't recognize anyone. I couldn't see where my friends were. I, I thought, well, have I been left behind? Had they gone and left me? How on earth am I going to get back to, to Norwich without a car with just my swimming shorts on? How on earth am I going to get back? I thought maybe it was a joke. and Maybe they'd upped and left and, and, and left me so I was on my own. All those thoughts went flying through my head. But then I realized that I was in a completely different area Of the beach. You see, I had drifted further and further away from where we had set up camp. The current had taken me down, and I eventually found myself in a completely different part of the beach. About a 10 minute walk up the beach, and I found where everyone was. They all wondered what happened to me and where I was, and if I got dragged out to sea, never to be seen again. They hadn't moved but I had drifted and the current had taken me way down to a different part of the beach. And you see, sometimes it can feel like God is far from us. But often that is because our sin has carried us away. We have drifted over time. The currents of Life and sin and the battles that we have faced mean that we have drifted and drifted away. You see, as believers, we wish we could get to a place where we are in cruise control with Jesus. Where we are just walking step by step, day by day in cruise control. But there's no cruise control in Christianity. We have to stay close to God by actively swimming against the current actively swimming against the tide. It's either that or it's drifting further and further away, falling prey to a world of sin, to little decisions that will gradually drift us and drift us and drift us away. There's a verse in Song of Songs which says that it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. It's the little decisions over time. It's a consistent decisions again and again and again and again and again that ruin God's plans and God's purposes for our lives. And what I'm doing this series over the next six weeks, what we're doing is I want to give you a tool in terms of how we fight and how we battle sin. And the tool that I'm giving you is this. You cannot stop a bad habit. You can only replace it with a good one. And what we're doing is we're going to look at different vices or sins that seem to trip us up. They seem to trip us up again and again and again and again. And we're going to look at each vice and each sin, but with each vice and each sin, there is a corresponding solution of virtue. So last week, we kicked off this series by looking at pride. And the way you deal with pride is you replace it with humility. Every day we looked at, you don't clothe yourself with pride, you clothe yourself with humility. How do I deal with pride in my life? Clothe yourself with humility. Even if you push off pride, push off pride, push off pride, it will come back unless you clothe yourself with humility. Today, we're going to be looking at greed and generosity, Now, let me ask you a little question. I wonder what jobs have you had over your life? What paid jobs have you done over your life? Let me give you some of the jobs that I've done over my life. Okay, so some of these are so random. I was just thinking about this this week. So one job I had when I was a student, you know the billboards you see on the side of the road? Well, I worked in a warehouse where you had to fold and roll the different sections of the billboards that were then put together for the guy to put in his van and to paste up. Hey, okay, you had to get the right order, otherwise it would have looked weird on the billboard. But that was my job. You had to fold and roll the different sections of the billboard. This one, you won't believe, but I, for a number of weeks, helped pack food that was served in hospitals. Okay, I really hope that people didn't get ill, but I packed food. And I, this Everyone, my wife in particular, laughs at this one. So, for one university summer, get this, I was... A security guard. Don't laugh. I was a security guard at the national physiotherapy school for the blind in North London. Okay. That was my job. Okay. That was what I did. Security guard at the physiotherapy school for the partially sighted. Um, I worked corporate entertainment for a while and I was a school teacher for seven years. Uh, I taught secondary school and I taught special needs kids. But do you know what? I never had as much money as when I was between the ages, comparatively, when I was between the ages of 14 and 18 years old. Because I had my own car washing business. Okay, in Hill, not too far from here. Okay, I had my own car washing business that would make between 30 and 40 pounds on a Saturday morning, 25, 30 years ago. That was a lot of money. Some of you youth, that's not even bad right now. Okay, Saturday morning to make 30, 40 quid. And I used to then get on the bus, but don't judge me here. And 10 quids would get my bus to go and watch Spurs at White Hart Lane, would get me the ticket, would get me a pie, would get me a program, and the bus home, 10 pounds. Cost you about 100 pounds today. But anyway, okay? And comparatively, I never had as much money as I did between those ages of 14 and 18 when I had my car washing business. Now, we're going to look at greed today. And I want to give you a definition of greed. Greed is an intense and selfish desire for something, especially wealth and power. And here's the thing about greed. You never have enough. A Capital One survey in 2021 said that finances were the number one cause of stress by 71%. 71% of people surveyed said that finances were the top of their list of causing them stress, more than politics, more than work, more than family, more than relationships. And unsurprisingly, the younger generation was even more stressed by finances than the older generation. Now, Jesus talked a lot about money. Okay? In fact, apart from the kingdom of God, he taught more about money than anything else. And he did so out of a real love for each one of us. Jesus often said that money and riches are the one thing that might prevent you from entering the kingdom of God. That money and riches is what's going to stop you from realizing your need for a saviour. In other words, you have all the comforts that you need in this life, so you don't then think about eternity. And you don't then think about what will happen one day when you die. Jesus told 40 parables in his ministry, and 11 of those were about money. So over 25%. He's talking, he's teaching about money. Now, money is the very air we breathe. Money is everywhere. We spend three pound, four pound on a coffee at the drop of a hat. We swipe a card and buy an item. We we do our just eat delivery on our phone. We we get our hair done. We go to the shop. We buy something in the sale. We, we do an Amazon order, at the click of a finger. We go out with a friend for a dinner for 50 quid. Money, spending money is just part of the air that we breathe. And what's interesting is that it's a bit of a paradox. We often think, oh, I don't think about money. I never think about money. In reality, no day goes by without us accessing, using, and thinking about money. So why does Jesus talk about money so much? Why does he warn us about money? Why is money such a difficult thing to talk about? Why is it so hard for us? I mean, think about it like this. It is easier... To give away one pound when you have 10 pound, that a 1,000 pound when you have 10,000 pounds. Why is that? It's because money has weight. It has mass. And what money has the opportunity and propensity to do is, is to pull us off course. To pull us away. And to fight back is difficult. Money is neutral. Okay, there's nothing good or bad about money. Money is neutral. Money can be used for good. Money can be used for evil. But money is neutral. It all comes down to the posture of our heart. Let's read what it says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money isn't evil, but the love of money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is neutral. It causes many to wander from the faith. But greed and materialism, it's not nothing new. It's not like, oh, just in Western civilization, over the last 100, 200 years, greed and materialism has become a big deal. No, it's nothing new. The richest man of all time was almost certainly King Solomon in the Bible. Okay, I was just reading up on this, this last week, and in the American billionaire, John Rockefeller, the Rockefeller Tower in New York, he, many people would say, is the kind of like the top of the list of modern era men, the top person, humanity, top person with the biggest amount of wealth to their name. And roughly, it's said to be around 517 billion pounds was attributed to him. But Solomon, so that's the son of King David, Solomon, the one with unending wisdom and wealth and land, theologians and commentators roughly estimate that his wealth was 1.6 trillion pounds. In other words, no one has ever come close to King Solomon in terms of wealth. So what has King Solomon got to say about wealth? Well, there's a whole book in the Bible about wealth and about Solomon's reflections on the wealth that he had. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And, And it gives huge insights into the trappings of wealth. It's thought by commentators that Ecclesiastes was written towards the end of Solomon's life. And he's looking back over his riches, and he's penning wisdom for you and I to read. It's his last days kind of warning about money and wealth and riches. He has authority. This man has credibility. So, we're going to read a few verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting at verse 10. We're just going to walk through this verse by verse, just very briefly, and look at some of the lessons that we can learn from King Solomon. Verse 10 Whoever loves money never has enough, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. I mean we could stop there and meditate on that. I mean look at that for a bombshell. Okay? Whoever loves money never has enough. You've got a lot of money, you always want more. You're a millionaire, you want to be a multi-millionaire. You're a multi-millionaire, you want to be a billionaire. Always wanting more. You're feeding a desire. Okay? Just like the desire of lust, just like the the desire of Anger, greed for money, the love of money is, is, is a, is a desire that you have to feed and feed and feed and feed. I mean, all of us, we can look back over our lives, maybe our earning history, maybe the jobs we've had, and we think, well, I got by with, with, with virtually nothing. I was earning one thousand pound a month, two thousand pound a month. I had all the needs I had. Now, now, how on earth do I cope? I am earning so much more, but but I cannot cope. I cannot cope. I'm always chasing, always chasing. Whoever loves money never has enough. That's the first piece of wisdom. Verse 11, let's read what it says there. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? You see, chasing wealth, Puts a strain on our relationships. Many of you will have heard of there's a boxer called uh, Floyd Mayweather. He was a very famous world title boxer and he earned a lot of money from boxing. He earned multi million pounds from boxing. But uh, he is famous for his entourage. And um, Floyd Mayweather had this entourage that that go with him everywhere he goes. And there's one famous story when Floyd Mayweather goes to a car dealership with his entourage and he spends over a million dollars to buy different vehicles for his entourage. I mean, you have to ask the question then, are they real friends? Are they friends there just to get benefits? You see... Wealth complicates relationships. Are friendships, relationships real, or is it all about the money? Let's go on to verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Wealth can be a curse to your sleep, to your rest. You can have all the money in the world, but be unable to rest. You think, when I had little, I was able to rest. I had no cares. I had no anxieties. I had no worries. Now I have all this money, but I have all this responsibility. I have all these worries. Will the markets crash? What about my investments? Will this go belly up? Will that work? Will this work? Will that turn round and bite me? I cannot sleep. I cannot rest because of the curse of wealth. Move on, verse 13 to 14. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, a wealth lost through the misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Easy come, easy go. Wealth comes, wealth goes. Who knows what is going to happen? You hoard your wealth, along comes a pandemic, pandemic and it is all is wealthless. You invest your wealth, and a war comes along, and then all is useless. It's almost like Solomon is saying, your wealth is like playing roulette. Will it go on black? Will it go on red? You never quite know which way it will go. Verse 15 to 16. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Do you know, even in death, wealth can be a curse. You cannot take wealth with you. You cannot. But you leave it behind and it often becomes the objects of war and discourse between families. The the, the inheritance, the money can split families. It can split siblings and marriages and brothers and sisters. You've seen the films, and it's not just in the films, it's true in life. Wealth can be a curse. And finally, verse 17. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. He's talking about those with riches. They eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And in the Hebrew, that word affliction, it means losing your mind. You see, Solomon, and you've got to remember, Solomon, he's saying this from experience. He's saying this as a billionaire, trillionaire, whatever. He's saying this is probably the richest man ever to have walked this planet. He's saying that riches will lead you to lose your mind that it's literally a curse for your sanity, a curse, and it, and it gives you the inability to think clearly. So why do we continue with all that said to desire money? Because greed consumes us, and we believe the lie that we will be different. We believe the lie that, you know, if we came into a huge inheritance, if we won the lottery or whatever it was, that, that that we would give it all away, that it wouldn't affect us. But it's simply not true unless you replace greed with generosity. So let's look at generosity. What is generosity? Generosity is this giving good things to others freely and abundantly. That's what generosity is. Free and abundant giving to others. You see, God has invited you and I to steward, that's the word, steward his wealth. He's entrusted you and I with his wealth, and blessings, and riches, and he's invited you and I to steward that wealth. You see, the Bible tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that all of creation is his, and he has dispersed his blessings and his riches in different amounts to different ones of us. The challenge then is to seek wisdom So we know what God wants us to do with, now listen, his money. That's the challenge. You say, Mark, well, how? How how do I know what to do with God's money, with God's resources, with God's finances? Well, firstly, we spend time with God. We need to spend time with him to know where he is telling us to funnel those resources, to share those resources to give away that money. The Bible teaches us about the first fruits, the tithe going to the house of God. The Bible talks about being generous to others and blessing others in need. And what it comes down to is this. It comes down to a battle of your mind. Look at James 1 and verse 17, well-known verse. It says this, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. With that verse in mind, our minds have a battle going on all the time. And the battle is this. I earned the money. It was my qualifications that gave me that job. It was my hard work. That's going on in our minds. But then we hear, well, who gave you that ability? Who put you in that position to be able to have the family to love you and help you and grow you and put you in a position where you could succeed? God is the one who directs all things. You see, we have this battle going on in our minds. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from our Father in heaven. So I want to help you here. How, you might say, how? How? How do I replace greed with generosity? Well, it's a mindset shift. And I want to very briefly give you five practical ways to shift your mindset from greed to generosity. Firstly, I've mentioned this one already, but it, it bears mentioning again. Firstly, it's about having a stewarding mindset. All resources are God's, all possessions and monies are His. And I'm not a container to store that and hoard that. No, I'm a conduit to get that money to where it needs to go, where God is guiding it and where God is prompting me to put it. I'm not a bucket to put coins into. No, I'm a pipe for God to funnel his resources to where they are needed most. I love the fact that you know the word currency we talk about British currency and the you know the, what's the rate of the currency we talk about currency is money well currency in the greek is quite obvious really but it's, it's it's like a river it's like a river current and i think when it comes to money when it comes to finances the question is where will they flow through you where will the currency the resources the finances the money that god has given you where will it flow. That's the first thing. We need to have a stewarding mindset. Secondly, we need to have an accountability mindset. This is a bit of a challenging one. We need to involve God and others in questions of finance. And this is something that some of us struggle with because money can be so difficult to talk about. But I think we need to be much more accountable to God and one another when it comes to our finances. So if it's small little decisions around your week-to-week, day-to-day, should I get this new phone? Should I buy this new item of dress or this new shirt or this new pair of trainers? What about involving God in that decision? God, is this a good thing to do? God loves us to have nice possessions, good things. But it's good to be accountable if you've got 20 pairs of trainers and they're all looking sleek and all looking in great nick, then maybe number 21 might not be the best way to spend your money. But are you going to ask God? Are you going to involve him? Are you going to ask him to prompt you or to help you to say no? And then when it comes to big decisions, big decisions around finance, significant amounts of money. Are you going to involve your community group, maybe one or two people that you trust, your prayer partner, the accountability group that you meet up with? Because there really is a council of wisdom, a wisdom that comes through the council of believers, godly men and women that you trust, that you journey with over many years. And you can come and say, I'm thinking of doing X or Y with this significant amount of finances. Do you think that that's wise? Are you able to bring a decision like that to the table and ask for the wisdom of other believers in the spending or the investing of that money? Because if we are to place greed with generosity, I believe the way that we are able to do that is through accountability. Thirdly, we need to realize the blessings of wealth. All of these five things all kind of fit in together. Okay, we need to realize that God wants you to enjoy life. That there's something good about enjoying good things. That God wants to bless you with material wealth and blessing to meet your needs. That there's something good about enjoying a great meal, wonderful clothes, a holiday, doing up your home, doing up your room, whatever it may be. They are good things that God wants you to enjoy. But you know what? There is also joy and generosity of blessing those around you, that you are able to see the blessing that it brings others. To say there's blessings of wealth in my life, my family, my children, but also there's blessings of wealth that come when I am generous to others, help others, look out for others, bless others. Fourth practical way that we can change our mindset is to understand contentment. You see, one of the things that the devil gets us so much when it comes to wealth and finances is we have got a great life. We have got great blessings when it is in comparison to many around the world, to the vast majority around the world. But we look at someone else, whether a friend, whether someone in our family, whether someone in the media, and immediately we feel terrible because we covet what they have. You see, the way to live as believers is to enjoy where God has put you. And to understand in the place and in the time that God has placed you, you are to enjoy the season that you are in. And many of you, if you've been through the ups and downs of life, will have been through seasons of abundance when it comes to finance and a season of scarcity when it comes to finance. The key is contentment. The key is a mindset of contentment. Because as we looked at with Solomon, sometimes the more money you have, the more trappings that you have, the more temptations that you have, the more accountability that you need. You see, don't let the enemy distract you. Contentment comes from God alone. Riches are good. Riches have their place to bless you, to make life enjoyable. But contentment comes from God alone. I think it's interesting if you look at Jesus. Jesus lived his life 33 years as we know on this earth. And the three years that we find out about Jesus, we see that he was both content and generous. How did he do that? He was content and generous because he lived life communally. He didn't keep things to himself. He was always sharing with others. He was always inviting others in to enjoy a meal. He was always sharing what he had with his disciples, with the crowds, with those who came to listen to him teach. And finally, number five. How do we replace greed with generosity? It takes practice. It takes practice. This is a battle and this is a fight. The temptation is always, I need more. I need more. I need more money. I need more this. I need more riches. I need more of this, more of that. That's the temptation. I can guarantee you that as you go from here this afternoon, Thanks, Felix. I can guarantee that you will be tempted to click around as Amazon and just click on something and order it to your door tomorrow. That you'll walk past your shop and you'll see a sale, so you'll be tempted to go in and buy something, not because you want it, but because there's a sale. You'll get an email from your favorite store and see some new design of this or that or some new funky gadget that's come along, and you'll be tempted to order it. You see that while one of your friends has got a new this or a new that, and you'll be tempted to go and buy exactly the same thing. You see, we think we want more. It is the challenge of greed. It is never satisfied. It is always wanting more. If I don't buy it, if I don't get it, I won't be happy. If I don't buy it, if I don't have it, I won't look good. If I don't buy it, I don't have it, I won't get on in this world. But the trick is that will never be satisfied. That will always be continually going on in your head. So we have to say out loud if it helps, no, I don't need that. Sometimes all these emails and things that come through on my phone, I have to literally say, no, I don't need that, delete no, I don't want that. Delete. Just um, unless I'm around other people, I would say that out loud because otherwise I know if that thought festers, that thought festers, I'll come back to it and in maybe a weaker moment, I'll be on it and just order something that I do not need. And the other thing is, it's not just about saying no, it's about working out where can I be generous Like I said, it's like, it's it's, it's a replacement. No, I'm not going to have that greed for me. No, I'm going to look to how I can be generous to others, how I can be that conduit to other people. I think it's fascinating that Christians down the centuries have been known as generous people. Those with wealth, those with very little. Christians have been known the world over Whatever the nation, whatever the time of history, Christians have been known to be generous. You read the early church, Acts chapter 2. There, the very forming of the church, generosity, sharing possessions, giving to others as those who are in need. Through times of great hardship and famine and persecution, you will find that nearly always it is the church who is at the forefront of generosity. The whole thing around food banks that has really kind of multiplied in this nation over the last kind of 10, 20 years originated from a Christian, the Trust of Trust. It originated from believers wanting to, 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 to share resources and give away food. It takes practice to be generous, but there's a great joy in giving. We are called to steward God's resources, to hilariously give away to bless others. Now, before we close, I want to leave you with a little bit of a challenge, okay? I don't want to leave you maybe a little different way of thinking about this. Because sometimes, although it's important to talk primarily about money, okay, there are also many other resources that we have. So I would love to challenge you this week to do this. I'm not going to check up on you, okay, but this is a little challenge that you might want to do this week. To get a piece of paper, okay, and on that piece of paper, to or on your phone, on a, on a pages kind of thing, or wherever it works for you, to write down a list of everything that God has entrusted to you. It could be a certain amount of money. It could be your home or your flat. It could be your marriage, your children, your time, your leadership position in your work, your friendships. It could be particular resources that you have. Whatever it is, to write a list of what you have, what resources God has entrusted to you. And then to almost go through and grade yourself about how you steward those resources. You know, I suggest that it wouldn't be that anyone would see this document, or you might want to just share it with one other trusted friend or someone that you're accountable to, but to go through and think, well, actually, I'm really good at sharing my home. So I'm going to put an A because people come around. It's a place of hospitality. People drop in and out. And yeah, I use my home, whether it be a flat, whether it be a house, whatever it may be, I use it as a place to steward the resource of this home that God has used me. Or you may think, well, actually, though I have much money that is in the bank, I am not using that yet. I am not stewarding that well to the glory of God. Or maybe you think, well, I've got time. At the moment, I am rich in time. I don't have much money, but I have a lot of time. Well, then the question is, do you steward, do you use the time that God has given you to bless others, to encourage others, to look out for others? And as you go through that list and you're honest with yourself, an A here, a B here, a C here, an E here. You know, as you're honest about how you grade yourself with stewarding the resources that God has given you, you can then pray and ask God to help you to be a conduit and not a container. For God to help you to be generous because God is calling his church and his people to be generous. And in this cost of living crisis and all that's going on in our world today, I really believe that one of the ways as a church that we can step up and serve those around us is through generosity. And yes, that means giving away money. That means helping people with food. But it also means being generous with our time. It also means going to visit people who are struggling. It also means opening our homes. It also means using our roles and leadership positions in our workplaces to bless others and help others. It means a whole multitude of things. But bottom line, as a church and as Christians, we are to be known as generous people. What does Jesus say to sum up the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love one another. How do you love one another? You're generous with yourself. Time, resources, finances, whatever that may be, you're generous to other people. And two questions, final questions that you might want to reflect on, just put them up on the screen as something that you could think about. How do you struggle with greed in your life? Be honest. What is it? What area? Do you know that there's that insatiable desire to keep feeding, keep feeding, keep feeding? And how are you going to take a step in growing in generosity today? What's generosity going to look like for you this week? Again, this series, I really want to give us tools to battle and tools to live the holy life and tools to shake off vices or shake off sin patterns that have hampered us for years, maybe for decades. And the only way it works is by replacement. No to greed, yes to generosity. When the temptation comes, buy, 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 do, do, do. Well, what about give, give, give? What about bless, bless, bless? It's the only way. Because otherwise, as much as you push away those greed thoughts, they will come back tomorrow. They will come back when you are weak. They will come back when you are least expecting. And when they don't get you today, they will get you further down the line. And you will come back to what it says in Romans 7. Why do I do what I don't want to do? The only way to battle, to fight with the help of the Holy Spirit is to say,